welcome to the ACOP Student Podcast, a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. Welcome to the ACOFP podcast, DO.FM. This podcast episode will focus on choosing a residency program that is right for you and what your first job after residency might look like, as well as any leadership roles that you could have. I'm Sophia, the Secretary of the Public Relations Committee for the National Student ACOFP team. I'm a fourth year student at Kansas City University College of Osteopathic Medicine, currently applying to family medicine residencies. With me today, we also have Megan Slattery, one of our PR committee members. Today we are joined by Dr. Garrett Kirkpatrick. Dr. Kirkpatrick attended the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine and graduated in 2014. He completed his residency at UPMC Altoona in Altoona, Pennsylvania in 2017 and served as chief resident. Currently, Dr. Kirkpatrick works in an outpatient suburban group practice with the Cleveland Clinic. His clinical interests include joint injections, practice management, population health, and quality improvement. Dr. Kirkpatrick has been an ACOFP committee participant since 2015, served as the ACOFP resident governor in 2016 to 2017, and has been a member of the ACOFP Congress of Delegates since 2018. While Dr. Kirkpatrick's background and residency leadership, we'll be discussing how to choose the right residency program, how to prepare for interviews, and how to incorporate leadership into your residency experience. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to, to talking with you guys today. So, Dr. Kirkpatrick, we try to ask everyone on the show this, but how did you decide on family medicine? Well, family medicine uh, came as a pretty easy choice. Uh, family medicine was pretty much my ideal of medicine when I was applying to medical school, you know, kind of being that uh, that doctor that knows you throughout your whole life, uh, can grow with you as you, uh, as you get a little bit older and can um, treat you along the way, um, no matter what problems may arise. Um, so that was really what led my interest along the way. During medical school, of course, uh, you, know, you get exposed to a lot of different things. And so I had actually changed my mind a lot throughout that course as to what I wanted to do for a while. I thought maybe I wanted to do pediatrics and then maybe surgery and then maybe a little bit of this or that. Um, ultimately, because I had such a strong interest in everything, I was led back to family medicine because you have such a broad scope and really can tailor your practice to how you want it to be in family medicine. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. I think we can all kind of relate to that. We all like to be generalists and usually family medicine is great for that. Um, did you have any specific interests that you were looking for when you were looking at residency programs, like any focuses that you really were looking for? Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the when I was looking for residency programs, I think there's a lot to take into consideration. Number one, you really want to take into consideration any special interests that you might have and really look at the program and see if they offer um, anything and to what extent they offer it um, that are specific to those interests. For instance, some uh, residents are really strongly interested in OB. They want to do obstetrics in their practice. Vice versa, some may really want to be interested in uh, joint injections or other aspects of sports medicine, and so they really want to make sure that they're enough exposure to that in their practice when they're training. And so for me, I was looking at, uh, at what was most important to me at that time was really where I could get the maximal amount of training to be a great generalist um, and, uh, and best prepare me to 
practice kind of moving forward as that generalist role. So specifically, I was most interested in an unopposed family medicine residency. So basically what that means is that there are no other residents at the hospital system where you're training. Um, so as a family medicine resident at my program, we were it. Family medicine was the only residency that was there. So we didn't have to compete with obstetrical residents to get deliveries. We didn't have to compete with, uh, you know, surgical residents to be first assist in uh, surgical procedures and know really what's going on with the surgery. Um, as a, as a family doc, you know, you want to know what that surgery is like so that you can explain it to your patients and potentially care for them appropriately postoperatively when they're coming back to you. So Dr. Kirkpatrick, just reflecting on your own fourth year experience in medical school and the interview process and applying for residencies, looking back on that, are there any questions you wish you would have asked programs or things you wish you would have asked about more um, throughout the process? Asking about is a little bit hard to say, but definitely I think the most important part is to do your best to observe the program, um, which in the world of COVID sometimes is a little bit harder to do um, than, than not, especially if you're not able to um, interview in person, if you're doing virtual interviews or something like that. But really doing your best to observe the program, observe the interactions of not only the faculty with the residents, but even the residents with each other, see what type of program it is. Um, and uh, I think that's really, really important. You want to definitely know what type of a community you may be joining when you become a resident at a specific program um, and that you're going to potentially mesh well with those that you're going to be spending three years with working with um, pretty much day in and day out. Oftentimes as a resident, you may be spending time with your colleagues more than you're spending with your families. You know, so you want to make sure that you get along with those people and that it's a, a good situation for you. Um, as far as um, maybe specifics, you want to make sure that if you do have special interests, ask the, the deep, hard questions about the program and do they have, um, you know, availability to do some of the uh, training that you're maybe interested in. For instance, if you have a strong interest in wound care, you know, find out how you can really get involved with wound care um, beyond the surface of, of saying, oh yeah, we can, we can get you some wound care. Well, how does that look? What is that going to look like if I want to get exposure to wound care? Is there a, a surgeon or a, a wound care a family doc or someone else who I could be working with on a regular basis, maybe even longitudinally throughout the course of residency to really gain those extra skills that I'm gonna to want to carry into my practice moving forward. Um, so really evaluating, not just on the surface, because you can kind of get just about everything in any program, but to what depth you're potentially going to get that special interest training that you're looking for. I, I want to echo that too. I think I read this on Twitter recently, but someone said, when you've met one family medicine program, you've met one family medicine program. They're all so different. And I definitely, when I started looking at applying, I didn't really understand the difference between opposed and unopposed. Um, so that was pretty new to me, but um, I would say too, asking specific questions has been super helpful for me. And um, people are very honest too. I, I'm really interested in rural medicine. And so I always ask program directors, can you tell me a little bit about rural electives and have people enjoyed them who've done them? And they're very honest with me. Some people will tell me that they're not very strong and that's good to know. They, you know, I think on both sides of it, residents are looking for a good fit, but so are program directors. They'll tell you what you wanna know. Absolutely. They not only want to have good residents in their program, but they want their residents to be happy. They want their residents to get what they're looking for. So if they really think that you're not going to achieve what you want at that residency, most of the time, most programs are going to tell you that um, because they want 
you to seek out your best interests. So definitely be honest with that. Be honest with the programs. Be honest with yourself. Yeah. And it's definitely a little different too with COVID. All of my interviews have been virtual this year, which has been interesting. Um, but for any, Megan, you're, you're third year, right? Yeah. yeah. So when you're applying, if it's virtual next year, you still can, you'll still get a sense of how the residents interact because you'll do a like meet and greet the night before most programs do. And you can tell by how many people show up or, um, you know, how they're interacting with each other. You can still get a good sense of if the residents like each other. I think it's been valuable. Absolutely. And I always say if you have the opportunity to visit a program, even if it's just in, in terms of a uh, quote unquote second look down the road, um, even if it's just to, to visit the area, get an, an idea what the, the location, the region where you're going to be practicing as a resident is like, it can certainly be very, very helpful. And even so, like multiple health systems, they've gotten very large. So they may have multiple family medicine residencies, for instance, um, and each of those residencies are gonna be potentially different from each other. You served as chief resident at your residency, is that correct? Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about what that position is like and um, kind of what, one, what your role looks like, what you liked about it, what was tough about it? So yeah, it was a it was a great role. It was definitely a, a, a added challenge um, I, I, on certain days, um, but obviously it was very fulfilling challenge as well. Um, every program does their chief residency role a little bit different um, than other programs. So specifically at our program, we were a medium sized residency program, um, eight residents per year, um, so total of twenty four family medicine residents, and so we had two chief residents every single year and. Ours was different, it was longitudinal. So if you served as chief resident, you actually served during your second year and your third year. So we had kind of a junior chief and a senior chief. Um, and so that kept a little bit of uh, continuity going forward, you know, between everything that's going on from year to year, that, that was certainly helpful. In my role at our residency, Chief residents serve as a very kind of managerial administrative role, um, basically, you know, making call schedules and uh, coverage schedules for different services on weekends per se or holidays, um, assigning coverage to different residents, pulling a resident maybe to cover a service that's in need um, when, you know, somebody's out sick or something like that. Um, I can only imagine the new challenges that chief residents have faced in the world of COVID too. That's probably created a whole new layer of, of challenges with how you do that as well. But it's certainly an invaluable experience because, you know, in medicine, especially if it's something that you're interested in from uh, uh, practice management or an administrative medicine side of things, um, you'll gain valuable skills with not only how to work with your uh, your colleagues, other family medicine residents, but really everyone in the healthcare system. You know, we worked closely with not just residents, but all our attendings, administrative staff within the residency, and even the hospital system. Um. Oh, and then we also wanted to talk to you about your role. So you, it seems like you've been working with the ACOFP for a number of years. Um, how did you get started in that? So uh, I actually got started when I was a resident. Um, I had uh, been kind of a peripheral member of the ACOFP throughout medical school, but never really got terribly involved. Into residency, I started to gain more interest in leadership roles, and, uh, and I was introduced to the Future Leaders Conference. So that was really the first big thing that actually drew me in to ACOFP and, uh, and actually, I think, really helped me out as well through my course of becoming chief resident and 
other leadership roles that I've held uh, after that point. Um, the Future Leaders Conference was a, it's a great um, annual conference that they hold for people who are very interested in and in being leaders, not just in the ACOFP, but in a general sense throughout uh, their careers. It's something that helps to gain, helps you to gain uh, insight uh, into yourself and your potential leadership styles, which um, really help you to address whatever challenges that may come your way when you're working with other individuals. But also, you know, it was a great opportunity to meet uh, a ton of great people from, from across the country who were in similar roles, um, who are also actively involved within ACOFP and then leadership oftentimes at their residencies or at their hospital systems. And, uh, and so that was a great experience. And then pretty much ever since that time, I was hooked. You know, ACFP is a wonderful organization that advocates really on behalf of um, not just osteopathic family physicians, but really all of family medicine and, you know, working all the time to try to make things better for, for family medicine and uh, especially uh, early career practice physicians and everything. I think it's a great resource to turn to um, because medicine is changing so rapidly um, and it's, it's been good. ACFP has adapted really well throughout a lot of that and has, has really sought to, to maintain that role of advocating for its members throughout the course of all those changes that have, have come down the pipeline really in the last six or so years. Um, kind of continue on the uh, relationship with the ACOFP, what has been one of your favorite things about working within the ACOFP and being on various committees? I would say my favorite thing is really probably twofold. One, the openness of everybody to really hear new ideas, um, especially ideas from younger physicians. And when I was resident governor, hear perspectives from residents, um, but also, uh, you know, getting to work with the amazing people that are already part of this organization and have been part of this organization for a very long time. There's a lot of great, you know, mentors within the ACOFP and, um, you know, it's, it's just a great family feel, no matter what you do, pretty much everybody kind of talks to you as if they're, they're your, your friend that you've known forever because it, it, ACFP is a family, you know, oftentimes, you know, you graduate from a specific college or something like that. And anywhere you go, you, you meet that person who graduated from that same college and immediately your friends. It's the same with ACFP. If you have, you know, other members who are actively involved with ACFP, you know, you have kind of a, a special bond, if you will. Um, ACFP, you know, treats us, each other like family. And I think that's the best part of it all. Do you think there are any resources or tools that the ACOFP has that have affected your practice recently? Well, there's definitely a lot of uh, tools available and there's continuing to be more and more developed on a regular basis. Um, so certainly they have a lot of CME opportunities, which once you graduate residency, CME becomes a big thing that you need to make sure that you keep up to date with both for purposes of licensure, but also for board certification purposes. So that's probably one of the biggest things, especially when you go to conferences. Um, as I mentioned, the Future Leaders Conference has been invaluable in, in the different leadership roles that I've held, um, both not within just in, within the ACFP, but in my practice as well. There's been tools along the way about how, how to manage population health. Um, there's uh, a countless number of ways that you can uh, kind of 
keep up with, with what you need to do for your daily practice through ACFP. There's the OMT videos that they do, which first people who are maybe outside, out of school and not practicing OMT on a daily basis on a, uh, anymore or thinking about OMT necessarily on a daily basis, but maybe every couple of weeks or have a specific challenge that it can be very good to turn to those videos and say, huh, I can't remember the last time I tried to fix uh, an anterior fibular head. What's the, what's the proper way to, to do this? So. Um, so that's definitely a great tool. So, and they're, they're always looking for new ideas if there's something that people are looking for to come up with new um, resources for, for members. Um, and I'm not sure if we talked a little bit about what your practice looks like today, but can you um, kind of tell us where you're working, what setting you're in? Because there are a lot of different ways that you can practice family medicine. So what's your setting and then what are some of your specific clinical interests? Yeah, absolutely. So there's so many different ways to practice family medicine at this point. It's, it's, um, it's like a buffet of options anymore. Um, my specific setting now is an outpatient uh, practice, uh, part of a large health system, Cleveland Clinic. Um, and uh, I work in a, a practice with five other, well, four other doctors. There's a total of five doctors in the office and we also have five nurse practitioners each paired with us one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and three of us are DOs, two are MDs uh, in our practice. So it's a good, well-rounded mixed practice. Um, we do outpatient medicine purely. At one point they did do uh, or inpatient practice through that practice as well. But most systems, especially if you're an employed doctor, you're probably looking at most of the time doing either outpatient or hospitalist work. And that's, that's kind of the models that most are going for. Oftentimes, really, that's driven by physician satisfaction because it can be a, a big challenge sometimes to continue to do both. But uh, so in my specific practice, I'm seeing patients pretty much day in and day out. I see patients uh, 39 hours a week, um, and then I work one sat half Saturday a month um, as well in the office seeing patients. And, uh, and our practice is pretty unique. We are actually on a value-based payment model rather than a fee-for-service model. So we have opportunities not just to burn and churn them and see the patients and, and bill each time you see the patients, but we're really focusing on population health, which is one of my interests, you know? So, you know, you have time allotted in your day, in your schedule to actually pull up your, your panels and see, well, how many of my patients are actually controlled with their diabetes? Who's uncontrolled? Maybe we need to get those people in. When was their last appointment? We need to work harder on getting these uncontrolled patients better control. And so it really allows us to do more of what we're, we're trained to do is take good care of our patients um, rather than just kind of seeing everybody whenever they actually schedule an appointment and get in for their office visit, which is very nice. Joint injections is also one of my special interests. I really enjoy joint injections. I didn't do a sports medicine fellowship or anything like that, but I really do enjoy doing joint injections in the office. Um, so I'll sometimes seek out the opportunities with my patients. I sometimes have my colleagues who don't do joint injections. They refer their patients to me and I'll to either take care of the joint injection or even drain um, you know, a, a large effusion from a knee if it's necessary or something like that. And, uh, and you know, that's the best part of family medicine. It's whatever you're interested in, you can really tailor it to be what you want it to be. You know, there's other practice options out there. You could go into private practice. You could go into direct primary care, which is definitely a, a highly physician satisfaction type of a field these days because you really get one-on-one -on -one time with that patient and, uh, and you get to do what you want to do in terms of how you're going to be caring for those patients. And you're not um, kind of being... Uh, uh, under the microscope of, a, of an organization or something looking at you. 
you know, and, and monitoring numbers or metrics or something like that. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, any other specific questions that you'd like to know about that? Yeah, so since you like doing joint injections, did you feel like your regular residency curriculum exposed you to enough of that to be confident? Or did you have to seek out extra electives to really feel good about your skills? So I think it's very specific. Um, if you ask me, I would say yes, my residency very well um, uh, prepared me for that. If you ask a couple of my other colleagues, they tell you the same thing. If you asked a couple other colleagues who went to my same residency, they'd say, no, I got no, no joint injections during residency. And I think it was because of interest level. So when, uh, when you express a certain interest, the staff usually will know that. And so they'll maybe schedule joint injections with you and maybe not with somebody who doesn't really express as much of an interest in doing those. Obviously, as far as um, different competencies are concerned, you will have a minimum number of procedures that you have to do for certain things to graduate residency. I think it's for joint injections, I think it's a minimum of 10 like knees or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, so you'll have to meet those minimum competencies. Um, but if you're expressing interest in that, you can certainly get more. And, uh, and you know, for instance, we do have a, a great ortho rotation where, you know, I got to do plenty of knee injections even on my ortho rotation as well. But even in just our family medicine residency practice, I, I was doing them pretty regularly all the time. Sure. Um, and one other thing. So on the interview trail, I've been really surprised and impressed with how family medicine residencies are very into OMT and really integrated into curriculum. Um, something that I wasn't, I think that's very family medicine specific. I think whether it's an osteopathic recognized um, residency or not, it's very embraced. Um, how did you feel like your OMT curriculum in residency was? And do you have any suggestions of questions for an applicant to ask if they were interested in that? So in, in my residency specifically, it was, it was a great uh, OMT curriculum. And, and at that time, it was the, still not part of the single accreditation system. Um, so we were actually duly accredited ACGME and AOA at our program. Um, so we did have a director of osteopathic medicine, which is pretty similar to how they're doing it now with like osteopathic recognized programs. And uh, that we had pretty much at least monthly, if not a couple times a month, noon lectures that were focused on specifically OMT topics. Um, and oftentimes that included not just a lecture time, but also a table training time um, to practice different techniques. Um, we did have um, uh, opportunities within our practice to just on our daily schedule, you know, you're seeing patients, I have diabetes, I have hypertension, oh, there's an OMT. Um, and you're, you're kind of just incorporating that in to your day-to-day -day practice. And then we also had, um, they instituted near the end of my time at the residency, OMT clinics, which a lot of residencies now will do, where they dedicate usually like a half a day, one day a week, where it's basically OMT, 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 OMT. And you'll have residents who are assigned to that OMT clinic, you know, to really get a good solid OMT experience. And you have you know, one of the DOs uh, who really is doing a lot of OMT as they're attending, you know, kind of they're there with them, leading them, potentially teaching them if they're, you know, trying to do a technique that they're not familiar with um, or not entirely comfortable with, you know, and, uh, and so a lot of the programs now these days, especially if they're osteopathically recognized, will have a pretty good curriculum, but everyone's going to do them a little bit differently. So if that's important to you, you definitely want to be asking about what their OMT curriculum is looking like. How does it work? Um, and maybe even how many patients in an average week um, do they do OMT on? Um, you know, because they may have a robust curriculum, but 
it's still a relatively new concept to their patient community that maybe they're still only doing five patients a week or, or less. Sure, um, sure. So. Yeah, another thing that I've run into as well is um, if you say you're an osteopathic resident in clinic and you want to do a technique, if there's not an osteopathic physician precepting, sometimes you're not allowed to. So I found that's a nice question to ask mm -hmm. as well as, you know, is there any sort of, what would I do in that situation? Can I, am I just checked off and I can do the techniques whenever I want to? Do I have to call an osteopathic preceptor and kind of virtually precept and tell them what technique I'm doing? Because um, I think it goes to show, you know, how willing they are to let you do OMT on patients, how integrated it is into the residency program. So I like to ask that question as well. That is an excellent question to ask. And one of the things that you can think about as well is that some of the um, MDs now that are part of a lot of these residencies, because ACFP has now passed and changed their bylaws to where MDs can become members, um, a lot of MDs in these programs may be starting to join and actually starting to learn some of the OMT techniques as well. So for the purposes oftentimes of being comfortable supervising um, DO residents when they're doing some of these procedures or techniques. Um, you know, in my residency, you did not have to have a DO immediately available necessarily. Um, there was almost always one in the building. So you could always find one if you needed one, but they didn't have to be in the preceptor office that day. Um, an MD could be there as long as again, you were comfortable with the techniques and usually there were a set number that you needed to be signed off on. And then once you reach a certain number too, then you can kind of do any of it unsupervised. And the, the uh, supervisor, whether it's a DO or MD, would come in at the end, just make sure that everything is was going well, see how things went, and do just part of the uh, procedure in front of them. And, uh, and then you're basically meeting your requirements. Sure, sure. Awesome. So kind of jumping back to residency, one topic that's been a focus lately is ensuring fourth year students making that transition into their first year residency are well prepared. Uh, do you have any advice you would give to those fourth year students who are preparing to make that transition into that um, first year? Yeah, so that's that's a really, really tough one. I would say really try to get as much exposure um, to the ins and outs of, of actually doing the uh, kind of logistical aspects of medicine as much as you can during your fourth year when you're on rotations. Because I'd say the biggest challenge when you're going from a medical student to a resident is not so much knowing the medicine and what to do in a clinical scenario. It's how do I get this accomplished? You know, how do I put in an order to make sure that the nurse does this? You know, how do I, you know, make what I want to happen? How do I make this clinical decision happen? Um, and so logistically, that can be sometimes a bit of a challenge. It's going to be a little bit of a challenge to even, you know, necessarily learn that as a student because so many different systems and uh, whether outpatient, inpatient, they all oftentimes use different electronic medical records. Everyone is moving more and more, it seems, towards EPIC, but there's still a lot of different ones that are out there. Um, so you don't know what you'll be exposed to. Um, during medical school, but, you know, trying to at least, you know, have a conversation sometimes with, with residents or, or just stand back and observe when you have the opportunity to, when something's going on, you know, so that you have, you know, that mental note of, okay, this is how they got this accomplished, you know, when this was happening. I think another thing is uh, learning how to talk to, to nurses, you know, with, uh, of patients, you know, I mean, take the opportunity when you're rounding on the floors on different rotations, 
you know, talk to, to the nurses and get comfortable talking with nurses so that when you are that, uh, that new early minted resident, um, you know, you can feel comfortable when you need to ask that nurse a question, um, when you need to potentially even give her some orders to take care of a patient, especially if that patient is having something acutely going on, something critical is happening. You want to make sure maybe you've already established some rapport um, with that, the nurses as much as you can because they're going to be your, your allies and your best friends, um, especially if you don't have, you know, you're attending right there then in, at, at that point. Okay. Great advice. Thank you. I think the, those students preparing to transition will appreciate that. <laughs> I know that can seem a little daunting. Absolutely. And it, know that, uh, that as you are transitioning, it's expected that you're not going to know everything. You know, there's, there's a learning curve there. Um, and, you know, Usually the upperclassmen residents can't speak for all, all types of specialties, but in family medicine, typically upper-class residents, they're expecting you to ask questions and they're, they're waiting for you know, that to happen and, and to be able to be there to help you. Well, thank you so much. Uh, final question, any final thoughts, little uh, pieces of advice for our student listeners you might have? I'd say, you know, talking about residency season and interviewing and applying for residency is probably the biggest thing, biggest piece of advice that I could give is be yourself 100%. Um, you know, don't try to, um, you know, tailor yourself to what you think the residency wants or is looking for, um, because in the end, it's not going to make you necessarily happy if you end up there and it wasn't somewhere you really wanted to be. Um, and it's not going to make them happy either if you're not happy where you are. Um, just be yourself um, and, and, you know, they want to see you as a person, you know, usually by the time you've made it to the interview trail, um, you know, they've already liked enough about you, you know, show them who you are as a person, you know, they're probably not going to be doubting your board scores or your medical intelligence or things like that by the time you're actually interviewing with them. Um, so show them who you are as a person. Thank you so much. That was great advice. Absolutely. You're very welcome. All right, I think that pretty much concludes all the questions we have. Uh, Dr. Kirkpatrick, we just wanna thank you so much for taking time today to share your experiences and advice as a family medicine physician with us. It's truly been a pleasure. Uh, thank you to our listeners and we hope you'll join us next month for another exciting podcast. Thank you very much for having me, I appreciate it. The ACOFP Student Podcast is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about ACOFP, please visit www.acofp.org. Looking for more resources on OMT? Visit ACOFP's OM Teaching at www.acofpomteaching.com and ask your institution if they subscribe so you can have access to over 150 OMT videos and support materials.